Hello, Tim. Oh, hello, Ryan. And hello, Happy New Year, everyone out there listening. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 124 of Dismembering Horror, the podcast show where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan. We dismember a horror film every week. In fact, we talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a horror film. We're on the quest for the sight unseen, for the sight less seen by us or many. In the case of this film, it was unseen by me, Seen by you, Tim, some time ago. When when, mm-hmm. when did, did you see this last? Oh, God. The last time I saw it was probably mm, some sometime within the last 10 years. Cool. And what is it, in fact? Today, we are talking about whatever happened to Baby Jane from 1962, submitted by our friend Ramsey. Thank you, Ramsey. And that isn't whatever happened to Baby Jane. It is whatever. The two words. And looking up the title for it in other movies, I noticed that. There's a bunch of movies that are like whatever, one word. Whatever happened to this? Whatever happened to that? But this one, I'm guessing, is the OG one, is whatever happened to Baby Jane. So... Mm. And it is, as uh, Tim, you pointed out, you want to make a point to say, I agree, directed by Robert Aldrich, screenplay by Lucas Heller, and based on the book of the same name by Henry Farrell. Farrell. (laughs) Mm, You never know with that one. Yeah. So what, uh, do you remember the first time you saw this, Tim? What is your relationship with this movie? I believe that the first time I saw this was when I was like oh, 12 or 13 or something like that. My parents, I guess they would have, it might have been on TV, but they were like, ooh, this is a classic. You should watch it with us. Cool. They might have rented it, but I, I doubt it. I, I, I feel like it was just on, you know, whatever. I don't know what channel would have been playing it, but <laughs> somebody was playing it and yeah. we watched it. So I have like after that I probably rewatched it in O two when I was on my like watch all of the like greatest movies of all time binge. I'm sure I watched it then. And then yeah, I probably watched it sometime I don't know. It, probably in like well in this most recent decade for sure can't remember if i was in new york or here when i watched it but yeah all right so I've well seen there, it a few times there's your viewing history with it i'm gonna ask you some follow-up questions after we watch the trailer here if you're ready for the trailer mm. here i'm always i'm always ready except i don't have a place to put my coffee mug without it making noise come on <laughs> i need a, i need a coaster 
I mean, Spider-Man coaster for my Spider-Man mug. You see how if you mention that, it defeats the purpose anyway of not wanting to like do any (laughs) interruption by putting it down. (laughs) So you could just say, mug down. Anyway, great. All right, your mug's down. And when when you lift it up, you'll be able to put it back down in the same spot. We're all set. from it again. (laughs) All right. So here we go. From 1962 with the question mark at the end, whatever happened to baby Jane? Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever happened to baby Jane? To seek the answer to that question, we will follow a man plotting a murder. Highly specialized work. But Robert Aldridge has considerable experience in such matters. He has a dozen successful pictures to his credit. His stars are Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. The scene, an Italianate villa in a once fashionable section of Los Angeles. Its halls, once crowded with the bright, the beautiful, and the celebrated, now echo only to hectic whispers, the insistent call of a buzzer better left unanswered. A telephone that has become an object of fear. A supper tray that will not be touched. A window barred against the world. A hammer. A mute scrawl crying for help. From these elements, director Aldrich has fashioned a motion picture with a curious title. Whatever happened to baby Jane? Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. is Blanche Hudson. But we must warn you. If you're long That was funny, very much like that uh Hitchcock psycho trailer, right? Like the what one? Like the I... the Hitchcock psycho trailer. Oh you, yeah. You know, just acknowledging the director and seeing footage of him and having it be right. some sort of narration. Um funny. Old fashioned <laughs> like that. It's cool. Yep. Helped, helped maybe segue the world and the audiences at the time from the 1950s to the new, seemingly tumultuous, different 1960s. We're just going to tell you everything <laughs> yeah. without telling you anything. But Tim, what I really wanted to know, I guess, when I asked you about your relationship to this film, so we got your lowdown when you may have seen it the previous two times, but can you use this in, to segue into you know, how your current viewing was and your, what your rating is. So what was it like seeing as a kid with your parents? What was it like revisiting when you were watching it as part of the best films list? And what was it like watching this last time? Well, I, my, my vague memory of watching it as a, as a kid was that, you know, it was not that exciting. And... I kind of only remember like the the murder of the maid. That was like the high point and everything else I I just don't really have a recollection of. Then when I rewatched it, I was like, "Oh, okay, I get yeah, I get it." <laughs> I'm a, as an adult or a young adult, I guess. Um and like I quite liked it that second time cuz at that point I had seen other films with Betty Davis um all about Eve I think I watched right around then as well and I'm sure a couple others I'd never really seen I probably still have never seen 
any Joan Crawford films. Well, that's not true. I think there's one with, oh, God, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, maybe, if, if she's in that. I, I can't remember who's in what, but, um, you know, that's about it. Like, w- like one of her movies. So she she's not, like, she doesn't represent or, like, conjure up anything in particular for me. Um, although I think she's really good in this. And then this time, you know, I, I still think it's good, but I definitely have like critical, you know, points that I, I think are worth making. Um, especially in the context of like the other films we've watched and like other films of that era that we've watched. Um, I think overall, I'd say this is all a performance-based, like, success. Um, There is definitely filming stuff that I think is really cool, but I don't feel like that's what's, like, carrying the movie. It's all about the two performances for me. And, you know, I would say probably I'm... Still a rent for it. I, I don't I don't feel like I want to own this. Sorry. You don't have to apologize to anyone. Sorry, all all of the all those <laughs> hardcore baby Jane fans. Well, Tim, I feel like I may be amongst them now. I I was quite taken with this movie, not mm. knowing what to expect it or what it was gonna be. It like just just by the end of it and then and then and then how i felt afterwards i just it just mm. conjured that bit of obsession that i get with just you know movies that uh that uh make an impact on me so i i just feel like i got to give it a buy it for that i'm i was this, <laughs> this movie is so good i thought <laughs> it's amazing and i um I, I was going to watch, it was funny, it was one of those things where I'd always meant to see it, but then I stopped watching it, or I, I delayed in watching it because it was submitted a while ago. Mm, but now mm-hmm. that it finally has, I'm so glad I've finally seen it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess I'll get to, a, get to it more about why all that is. But uh, I, I mean, in summary, of course, you know, like you said, the acting, but I mean, I think it's just probably the original text it was based on and then couple that with just a competent, experienced filmmaker, you yeah. know, making kind of whatever uh, solid movies that just was the perfect storm to, I don't know, get. It was very substantive for me. I'll, I'll, I'll be using that word a lot. How about today? <laughs> um, took me Fair. for a very, very fun ride in the way that the best movies do. So there you go. <laughs> How about that summary then? Should we, should we divulge to us what happened in this film, what it's about? Yeah. Okay. It's about two sisters. And <laughs> it's, <clears throat> it, it, I think it's also important, it, it takes place in a specific era. So we start off in, I think, 1917 or 13, I forget which. And we see a 17. And we see a young girl, probably 10-ish, who is a uh, vaudeville performer. 
and you know she's doing this sort of song and dance number with her father accompanying her on the piano and it's to a big audience in a theater and you know they're one of the the many revolving vaudeville acts of the time pre film and you know she's like somewhat successful but you could tell that her dad is kind of a huckster like he's stage dadding her and like they're trying to make a buck off of her talent and the older sister um so that's jane and the older sister blanche is sort of this i don't know she seems kind of like a plain plain old person girl i don't know sister and and the mom sort of says hey you know someday when you actually are successful because you will be just don't be too hard on your dad and your sister for the all of this dragging you around the country and trying to make a buck family stuff. So then we jump to later, like, I don't know, 20 years later, and we, we don't see either of the sisters, but we get a nice little uh, mini sort of, it's like a connecting exposition scene. And we learn that, Blanche has become extremely famous uh, in film and that she's kind of contractually obligated the studio to keep her sister working in films as well, just as like a, a handout. So that's kind of interesting. And we get what I'll, we'll talk about this and what works, but we get what I think is one of the cooler little foreshadowing nods or like clues in that scene. Um, and then we get to the bulk. So that's all just exposition type shit. We get to the bulk of the story, which is 50 years later or whatever. The two sisters are kind of, they've, um, been relegated to the mansion that they live in because Blanche's career was cut short by a car accident. And it is vaguely made to look as though Jane was the purpose she that she ran over Blanche and crippled her. And based on what we had seen of her as a child, a spoiled child, and what we'll come to see of her, certainly uh, uh, it doesn't come as a surprise that she might be able to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's like a good, I would say 20 minutes of sort of setup scenes, which lead us really like hold our hand to be like, Here's what you need to think of these people. In particular, you know, that thing, the spoiled kid, and then seeing her as an adult and not being good. Like the the film guys that are talking about them are like, she's horrible. Why do we keep giving her jobs? And they're like, well, because her sister said we have to. So we know that she's no longer talented or whatever, no longer relevant. So when we meet them as adults, they're both aged and um blanche is in a wheelchair upstairs in this mansion and (laughs) jane is completely out of her mind (laughs) which is fun to watch betty davis just go full force yeah uh and you know she kind of she's she's kind of at first she's just kind of taunting blanche a lot and and She's clearly an alcoholic. I mean, she's got like 50 empty bottles of liquor in the cabinet. 
Um, the way she's, she's walking up that stairs, the stairs at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like she's, she's so a mess. Drunk. And you know, there's like a half hour of the of the movie where it's just it's just Jane being kind of a mess and bringing food on a silver platter up to to Blanche and then taking it away and bringing bringing more food back or whatever. And that becomes kind of like one of the main uh tactics of, of psychological torture that she you know places on Blanche. And the reason she does that is because the real like thing that's going on behind the scenes is that Blanche needs it, she desperately wants to get out of there so she and she holds all the purse strings so she's going to sell the house put Jane in a some sort of home or like hospital or whatever and then like move on with her life that's the impetus for all of Jane's like insanity and it really just kind of spirals you know like Jane knows what's up Blanche wants to get out of there Jane escalates. Blanche realizes she's in trouble and starts to try and find ways to get out of there. And it escalates all the way up to Jane, uh, you know, murdering uh, the the help and uh, really kind of just spiraling out of control psychologically. Um, she hires a, a pianist <laughs> so that she can revive her, her career as a singing vaudevillian 10 year old she dresses up the same way as she did back then it's really nutso yep and then you know the law kind of catches up with her and she is you know she tries to go on the run with blanche but ultimately gets what she wanted which was a bunch of attention and totally just like has a, a, a mental break and like that's kind of the end of the movie pretty much kills blanche it's yeah. it's left unclear. We don't know if she actually dies, but you can kind of presume they end up on the beach and you know, Blanche really had a she had a rough go at it. Absolutely. I mean, left hanging essentially, her arms up, left, you know, probably very little food or water if any at all. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. All right, Tim, well there's plenty uh that worked worked for me here. Definitely. I'm sure you too. So, should we get on with it? We should. All right, here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? What worked for you? I guess just to, I mean, we can always, you know, start start wide and then zoom in closer, but just to sort of talk through my experience more so watching this, mm. I just wanted to say, like, the, from the opening moments, from the get-go, Tim, I'm like, oh, man, this movie is doing it. This is a movie with some uh, some intention put behind it, some thought but, but put behind it. Just from oh, yeah. the opening moments, you it's like, you know, where I could see the see the screenplay, but in a good way of, like, over black... Uh, a child cries kind of, thing, you know, is is basically mm-hmm. the intro. A child crying. And it's like, but to use that, when if you're using that as an intentional, deliberate opening for a movie, like that's just, it's, 
it's you can do so much with that. It's huge. It's huge, huge. So I said loaded, loaded topic, topic, substantive. And then the thing, it's just you know some random little girl outside um, of the what we're going to jump into the theater to see uh, Baby Jane. But <laughs> the little girl, she's crying at a Jack in the Box, which is just like such just a clear, perfect. I, I mean, I mean. I was gonna say yes, yeah, perfect metaphor, I guess. But it's it just, really is. But it's just so huge that it's hard to even put in those terms when it's um, when it's like, yeah, it was afraid of something happening unexpected, which is like you know the human condition. Well, it, it's like I right think, there. Yeah, it's so smart because it's this. It's that thing of you know you know that something's going to happen. You know that that there's this mystery in the box is going to come out and the in what she's crying over it seems more likely is the is the anticipation of being scared or being startled or being messed with right because a jack-in-the-box is inherently sort of messing with your sense of anticipation and and when are you gonna get the scare it's sinister in that way like its intent isn't to its intent is to make is to startle you, which just sort of to a child especially is like could just communicate there are things that don't care about your well-being on some level, you know, that right. take joy in startling or scaring you. <laughs> and then Tim, and then it, it I don't know if it was maybe it was raining outside or is this this stylistic and there's nothing else like it in the movie, but there's a tear coming from the jack in the box's eye. Like, <laughs> oh, holy crap! Doing so much. Um, a little heavy-handed, but yeah, I dig it. <laughs> so good. <laughs> the whole movie is pretty in your face. With but with Betty Davis as your lead, maybe we should just talk about the two of them, our leads here. Get that out of the way. How about? Well, you know, just to sort of one thing to to tag on to what you're saying in the opening. Mm-hmm. The discomfort and like just for me at least the 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 inherent creepiness of the song and performance of the, the young baby Jane it it really primes you up i think the it, it's just it's off and weird and uncomfortable. She's singing a song about writing a letter to her dad. Daddy. You know, <laughs> yeah, and and like she sealed it with kisses instead of a stamp, and like it, it's it's her dad's dead. He's in heaven. It's like what what the fuck? Who decided to have a little girl singing that song and like <laughs> doing a little dance to it? It's and then like her actual dad is accompanying her and like dances with her. It's just like what is happening? Like that's <laughs> yeah. it's fucking weird and uncomfortable and just like strange and it's funny how like the audience is is i guess you know kind of like i didn't really think about this in the context of of the time but people would come in and pay their nickel or whatever just to see that one five minute performance theoretically right they they pack the theater they see their thing and they leave like it's a little like uh, revolving door kind of thing and then the next act is on mm-hmm. and it's something totally different it, in this case I think it was two brothers like juggle juggling brothers or something like that <laughs> yep 
you know? And it's like you just kind of get this whole overwhelming feeling of how weirdly um, and uncomfortably mechanical and, like, disconnected from, like, what a child experience should kind of be. Like, there's nothing about it that feels warm or caring. It's all a facade. Feels and exploitive we, to the core, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we, and then we see that Jane, you know, is like, I want a fucking ice cream, man. Like, I want to actually be a kid. Desperately just want to be a kid and not have to go, like, sign autographs or, like, go to bed early because I have to do another performance in the morning. And so you get a ton of important character, like, information in this fairly brief intro so i just think that like that's important it's it it sets the stage for the performances of the two leads i mean because it really gives you a um you know a, a solid foundation to understand why they are the way they are yeah i mean it was later in the film when i thought back to the opening and <laughs> remembered this the girl i i mean yeah that that's that's totally true how you put it, you know, it's, she's just, uh, she just wants to be a normal girl getting her ice cream. But I think like the the clear read to me on that scene or the, the point of it was she can get everything that she wants. She's, you know, also spoiled in that sense. Totally. Where the, yeah. the dad will do whatever just to sort of keep up this appearance, you know, make her happy, placate her. And that sort of sows the seeds for her arrested development in a way you know exactly i mean it says everything you need to know because what instead of a kid just a kid who wants to be a kid being allowed to just be a kid she's a kid who has learned that the only way to get what she wants is through manipulation and that sort of thing of like oh i can you know I can get whatever I want if I just put up a fuss and if I, you know, whine about it or whatever enough, they'll just cave. And so she, so both things are happening, right? It's like the worst version of not being able to be a kid because you've you've kind of like dissected the behavior enough to manipulate and conditioned your parents into giving you whatever you want. It's the worst kind of, like, that's not how kids should act. Well, and that's what this movie is really about, is a person who, it's the, the you know, manipulate with a capital M right there, as you said, it's the perfect word for it. She's someone who will lie, do whatever she wants to sort of bend reality, to sort of fit her her yeah. own lies or her idealization or her denial, like whatever it is. Like she's just one of those people whose fixation is, I, if I can get away with something, why wouldn't you do it to get what you want? You know, because you yeah. can, I'm going to do it. And having parents who just, they just give in mm-hmm. is the, is, terribly unhealthy <laughs> for a right. kid right like like a kid every kid needs to have structure it's the same i mean not to say that kids are like dogs but they're kind of like dogs <laughs> you know yeah. like if you let them tear if, if you let them loose and just t- to do their own thing and don't like give them rules and boundaries and shit they'll just chew the couch up 
And you'd be like, and then what? You're punishing them for chewing the couch up. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta like give them safe, loving boundaries and understanding so they can develop and understand those in the future. She well, doesn't get any of that. That's what it is more so, I think, is safe and loving intentions, right? Mm-hmm. Because that what is that's what I thought like sort of gets at was so scary about this kind of you know she's kind of an antagonist and protagonist in this Jane right like where what's so scary is when you have someone like her who's is that sort of you know self serving master manipulator will do and say anything kind of you know and but you know how you were pointing as like an extenuation of that that spoiled child self right Gain no discipline. Yeah. We see, though, you know, in her adult form, which is essentially still her child self, something like, you know, what you think of when you say the word discipline, it's not going to do it. You feel like if you do something like that, it's just going to set it off, set her off more. And that's what's so terrifying. Just kind of keep going down this thread that I was thinking of, you know, and like these these great movies, what they uh, what they allow you to do. It, um, so, I mean, so that's so, I'm just thinking, like, what's so scary about that? You know, it's almost like she's for her sister in this case, but, you know, we identify with, um, with her sister. It's like, we're getting a call to action to be our better selves. How do we deal with Jane, someone who's so extroverted, controlling, will use physical force, you know, how, what force is actually gonna, but you know, any physical force back at her is just going to make things worse too because mm-hmm. she's only going to like then do bigger whatever physical force you used on her. So what's so scary, yeah, is how do you, how do you deal with that? And I don't know, I just thought it was as interesting as like how I looked at, tell me if you think there's any truth to this, is that to, to just deal with it at all, like to outwit it at all requires like stepping into your better self, you know, in a way, you know, how, how, um, how, uh, I keep <laughs> confusing their names, Jane and Blanche, how Blanche, I wanted to call her Joan. Um, you know, how Blanche has to start actually planning out witting her, you know, um, trying to throw the note out, whatever it is, but to actually help her and not go on the path of, she just needs to be put away because she's cre- crazy. That's, you know, you could look at it as stepping not just into your better self, but like a best self, maybe. How do you all of a sudden empathize or give what that person needs that seems just so far gone by any current measures of society as far as, you know, approaches to things like this? Yeah. I think, you know, what what I is probably the most compelling aspect of this movie and the, and the story <clears throat> is how deeply embedded the the psychology is to all of their like their behavior and like just their characters cuz like at the end of the day the movie is about exploitation right if you you know jane is the product from all angles of exploitation and the genius of the movie is that they make it out to seem like she's only the victim of one type of exploitation and that this is that she's crazy and this her behavior now is just her being a jealous crazy 
uh, insane person. But what we find out in the end is that she's kind of the victim of the of the entire story. She was exploited by her her family. She was then exploited by her sister to kind of be dragged along in a career that she was not suited for. And then she's again exploited by her sister by being the scapegoat for the accident. Like and and being lied to because of her drinking problem, she, you know, could be manipulated by Blanche to believe that she was the culprit of Jones of Blanche's Jesus of Blanche's accident. And that I mean that's a level of exploitation. How many years has it been since then, right? Like Blanche has carried around this lie that she, I mean think how messed up that is. You tried to kill your sister cuz you're an asshole. And you crash the car and break your own back in the process of it. And then because you know that your sister is troubled and has like is probably blackout drunk in the moment, you two days later say, hey, sorry, but you were so drunk you ran me over and broke my back. That is the most insidious, messed up thing you can do. And then you carry on that lie for the next whatever 40 years that is that's insanely un like unacceptable and that's blanche blanche did that she is just like it's revenge for what something that jane didn't deserve in the first place right like jane didn't ask to be a vaudeville you know stage kid her dad made her do that so, like, when you look at it, when you realize at the end, I think that's the tragedy of the movie and why it's so good, is that we, the audience, have been led to believe this totally other thing. That that Jane is the product of her own shittiness. That she's a brat. And that she, you know, she's just a whiny, crazy, spoiled kid who never grew up. It's like... Everybody else created the the situation for her to be that way. And sympathizing with Blanche the whole movie is so smart, right? Like we like that that misdirect is amazing because you know it really does make us think what an awful person Jane is. <laughs> it's great. But like she's not the problem. I mean, she does awful things, but that's it's just act out behavior, right? It's childlike behavior. And it's really sad to me because it's man, like you're saying, if Blanche could could have just like, you know, exhibited a little bit of a higher self and just copped to it or like sought out help for Jane in a compassionate way, not a let's get her just get her out of my life way. But look at like the track that they went on. You can understand how she got there because I think, you know, her intentions behind keeping her on contract while she went on to be successful, like, are good intentions. But it's kind I think of a you're right. It's yeah. kind of a double edged sword, right? Of like, maybe though the solution isn't in making her, 
you know, that that's reinforcing something negative instead of, but unfortunately it's also just could be like, oh, you're just getting her work. So how is that a bad thing? That, yeah. Well, so it, it brings me, I think it's, a, this is a good place to just stick in the, the, this great scene, which seems a little bit just as like a passing scene of exposition, but it's the two studio execs. They've just watched Jane acting in one of these films that, that Blanche has kind of like, you know, made them make for her or put, made them put her in. And they're like, man, she's just bad. Like, she's just not good. Why do, why do we keep having to do this? And as they talk about the situation, they, they come up on a giant, I think it's a, you know, it's one of these big 1930s, like, convertibles. Huge car. I think this car actually is at the Peterson um, Museum of Automotive Museum. They have a bunch of picture cars there, and I'm pretty sure this is one of them. It's Whoa. it's huge. I mean, the thing is a is a goddamn tank, and it's super elaborate. And they walk up, and this line is just so perfect for foreshadowing because it says everything you need to know in a veiled way. They walk up to this car. They've just finished talking about why this situation is s- screwed up, and they turn to the car, and the guy goes, uh, "He's like." Uh, who would even want a monster like this about the car? And really what he's, you know, it's a metaphor, right? Like they're called, they pan over and they, and you see Blanche's name on a placard that it's like, this is her parking spot. This is her car. And, you know, it's really this veiled metaphor of like, it, they tell us Blanche is the monster in that moment. And Mm -hmm. until you watch it a second time, you don't realize what they're saying. But, like, it's right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) You know, and, and like, little things like that, I think that, to me, these are the things that I complain about a lot where we watch movies when these things don't exist. Uh, Foreshadowing, nuance, metaphor, you know, things that tie together in a in a fun and you know compelling intellectually intelligent way the the girding or undergirding of the story and the characters and what motivates them and where we're going and all those things like that's good storytelling to me and when it's not there that's when i get wound up cuz i'm like just come on yeah absolutely anyway so that's my, uh, I don't know, was that a rant? I don't think so. It felt like I was talking forever. I guess I look at rants, a Tim rant as meaning uh, your voice has to raise a few decibels. <laughs> yeah. That's at least how I define That's fair. it. fair. <laughs> um, uh, okay, what else we got going on here? How about just some of the more like horror-esque things in it that like really got, it's so funny, Tim, I was thinking like, we watch what's that? I don't know why I'm picking on this one. This is just the one that came to mind when I was thinking <laughs> on it. But where it was like the Netflix one that the Lodgers was it? Were the yeah, in Lodgers? Were the little the little um, the little door to the the ghost ocean below the lake below the house or whatever? <laughs> yeah. And I was just thinking of that, being like, 
Yeah, so that had creepy, eerie imagery, I guess, but it's not like anything ever scared me in it or disturbed me or bothered me or affected me or like really made me feel or whatever. It was pretty middling or whatever. But then this one, it was just... It's just so incredible, like, how horrified it actually made me feel in some of those moments. I mean, the one, of course, that most got to me, we have have, uh, uh, Jane serves Blanche her dead pet bird (laughs) on her plate, and then, if that's not enough, maniacally laughs about it, as if, like, that's, you know, just something about doubling down on that's her reality, that this is... Something that you just, ugh, kind of when you just really break down what's going on, it's it's horrific. It's horrible. It's it's yeah. it's like a distillation of all the sort of horrible neglect that you know that she received as a kid, but just like, but just that distilled to just this uh, pure, just this act of evil. It's like pure evil, man. It, it really got to me. There's there's so much to it. This is kind of the again what I why I think this is so brilliant. The the construction of these things. The metaphor that's underneath them are so incredibly spot on. So Blanche has a bird, a songbird I believe, that she keeps in a cage. That's right? why I made the the comparison to that movie is cuz the bird in the cage, right? Right? Yeah. Right. But that that's your metaphor, right? Like, we think, we make the connection, uh, at least on some level, that like, you know, that bl- that this is a, bl- we, we see Blanche, she's in a wheelchair, she's in the upstairs, she can't really go anywhere. We initially think to ourselves, oh, Blanche is, you know, she has a bird in a cage because she's a bird in a cage, right? Like she was this successful person and now she's relegated to this, you know, prison that she's in. The upstairs of a house, not even the whole house. Right. She can't get downstairs. And so we sympathize from that angle. But what the metaphor and, – and, and so then Jane, of course, comes in with the empty cage and she very flippantly is like – well, your bird got out. I was trying to do something nice and clean its cage, but it got out and it flew away. And it's all very like, it's just shitty. You know, Elvira, the housekeeper, she knows she's lying too. I love Elvira for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so, I mean, even the way she's doing it, it's a, it's a put on, right? It's an act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she knows it, right? Like Jane knows she's do- she's just acting out and being like, "Whoops, she's up to rolls something." Rolls her eyes. I didn't mean to do it, and it's like, "Oh God, you're the worst." You <laughs> yeah. did, and so. But what we realize is that if you scratch the surface a little bit deeper, Jane is the bird in the cage, right? That Blanche was holding captive by her own manipulation by telling her that she was the one that crippled Blanche. So it's Blanche saying, or it's it's Joan saying, hey, Blanche, you've turned me into this. This dead bird is me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to feed it to you. <laughs> God damn. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. so I think what, I guess what I'm getting at is how deeply smart and and nuanced 
Jane's character motivations are in everything she does, there's like this sort of deeper meaning that points to the lie that she's been told. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stuff is just amazing to me. Right. The second time she does it. So like, and, and just on the surface, what you're saying, I totally agree. The idea of being served your pet bird in, in your dinner is so messed up like so so messed up and then laughing about it (laughs) and then laughing about it being like (laughs) like that's so twisted and then she uses that to mess with blanche further because she serves her food and she's like don't let your lunch get cold it's like it's like hint hint there might be something under there and then there isn't right so she keeps doing it and then she does it again by putting a rat under in the plate but before she says she's like i would never put anything under there she had just eaten some of the previous meal that was not tainted in front of blanche and then she gives her a new meal and she's like don't worry, I didn't put anything under there. I would never do anything like that. Oh, by the way, we have rats in the cellar. And then, of course, Blanche is like, well, fuck. Now I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I want to look under there. And we all know that there's going to be a rat under there. Blanche knows there's going to be a rat under there. Yeah. And there's a rat under there. <laughs> and then, you know, and then and Joan. Then, and yeah. Jane's fucking she's over there laughing her ass off. Uh, but, uh, but even the even again, the rat thing, you know, it feels like I don't know, it also feels poignant to me. I don't know exactly what the the like the metaphor would be, but like, you know, she's a rat, she's a liar. She's mm-hmm. you know, Blanche, I mean. So like it's almost like Jane knows but doesn't know. And I think that carrying through and having her be in this arrested development state and this delusional state of like what's real and where she is in her life. No, it's that she's the victim. That's what she's at least aware of. It's not so much a knowing of a specific thing of being betrayed. It's her knowing, you could say deep down, I am a victim too. And it's like, what do they say? Anything like this is a call for help. (laughs) Exactly. Man, it's just so good. And then this sort of B story thing with the pianist who like wait, wait, also kind of I want to get to the pianist. Hold, hold on, the pianist thought. So I want to mention I love the line too when she goes, "Well, you're not getting your breakfast because you didn't eat your din din," and just just a, a little <laughs> more surrounding that um yeah. you know her her being her surrogate uh I don't know not like 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 caretaker I guess yeah, yeah. that. I think there's just a lot to it in the way that Jane is in that treating her and talking to her like a child. That's just quadrupling down on the idea yeah. of like you, your feelings don't matter so much that I can talk down to you as if you were not even, it goes beyond just a child, but like a plaything is what it makes you feel like. It totally robs you of any sort of worth. Just like in 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 dialogue like that, and let alone you know what she's feeding him. Um, it's just so it's just so well constructed because we cannot help but sympathize with Blanche. She's being messed with. She's in a wheelchair. She's like all these things are 
it's just in the biggest, boldest letters of like sympathize for this one. She's got giant eyes, you know, like sad, giant eyes. And she's like, she's just her life seems so miserable. And she's got this woman messing with her. Yep. And yet what we should be doing is sympathizing with Jane, right? And not to say we shouldn't sympathize with Blanche. Like, her situation does suck, but it is of her own making. Well, I mean, what this is all getting at, too, and, you know, this is sort of just a recurring thing and an inherent thing in all the horror movies we talk about. It's sort of, once you once you start digging, digging or, you know, break, tearing it apart, whatever, breaking it apart this way, it's it's you, dismembering you it. Yeah, dismembering it exactly. <laughs> Just like we did with Psycho, you can't pinpoint the trauma. You can't pinpoint the blame on any one person at a certain point. You know, totally. Yeah, which yeah, you're we, right. It does have. It is very Hitchcockian feeling. Yeah, which uh, um, you can I like see a lot. You can see as far as you know, um, uh, uh, passing on trauma between generations, and you wanted to say something on Edwin, which I did too. But what were you going to say on Edwin the uh, pianist? Because he's well, just great introduced as another aspect of the theme, or whatever, whatever. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a foil for Jane, mm-hmm. right? Like the it's it is funny too how they use him and his mom as sort of further information characters right like the mom knows the history of jane and like gives you know gives this little oration on it yeah (laughs) but like it's he's a foil for her right he he's kind of like the upside down version of her kind of for example he's a man child Right? Like, he still lives with his mom. His mom is kind of overbearing, but she's doing it in the opposite way as a stage, as her, as the stage dad did. Right? A stage dad is overbearing and trying to, like, make a buck off of the talent of their kid. Whereas Edwin's mom is insisting that the art form is not valid and that he needs to make a buck off of being a, like having a real job so he can but but the goal is the same for both parents right provide for me mm-hmm. which is a horrible like <laughs> it's just horrible stop asking your kids to provide for you you jerks <laughs> you know and so it creates this this uh you know i don't know how to even describe it the characters they like Edwin and Jane they they've developed into this weird adult child thing yeah well and yeah i just think that he this guy i uh the uh the actor has an interesting name and now i can't remember what victor it is victor buono yeah this is his first role like in the i remember in the opening credits it says and introducing he was went on to be like one of the villains in the '60s Batman TV shows. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sweet. You know, so it's just a really smart thing to then have these two man children or adult children uh, interacting with each other, and it's freaky. That whole sequence when they meet, all of their interactions, 
feel very strange to me. Like just (laughs) awesome in the most awesome way. Right. There's like cringy and uncomfortable. Because he's humoring her, yet from his own self-serving, I have to lie to get a job kind of way. Yeah, it's just like... He's manipulating her. Right. And I wondered if a way to put it was that he, in a way, is doing... It's like he's same in those ways, but is like same coin, different side, in a way. Where he's... I mean, you could, you know, compare his relationship with his mother, you know, is this this sort of same, same sort of messed up setup or whatever, you know, that all these people have. But it's that he is faking being someone else, like, like, you know, putting on the accent and just lying about his history, whatever it takes to get the job. And yet she is fixated on being herself, but like her kid's (laughs) self, like, like. It's it's just a there's a weird cool stuff going on in there, um, there's and it's some like weird basically between them, which yeah, I love, but I'm like, <laughs> well, it's because it's so clear that she's basically the, I don't know what the actual proper terms are, but it's like where she's his sugar mama basically is the setup, you know, yeah, where it's like well, she's paying, she she's putting him on the payroll, <laughs> right, right, but she's lying because she doesn't have money. You know what I mean? So there's there's this further sort of like they're both just manipulating each other and neither can really deliver. But I think what that what ends up happening or the res, the the effect that that has is that you see these two people jockeying for something that doesn't exist. Mhm. And then what the result is we just see them having this rapport that's dancing around jockeying for something that doesn't exist and so they're really just like coexisting in the room together in like this weird floaty like just uncomfortable way because neither of them have any footing yeah it's freaky and very cool and then he i like that he kind of falls apart oh when he he shows up drunk at the end it's so good yeah yeah but like the reason at least the the surface reason it seems that he falls apart is that his mom tells him the truth about who Jane and Blanche are and he he gets all wound up about it and he has to go find out whether or not Blanche is being held captive there and he does he sees her right like and he runs out and he gets drunk it's or he's it's, he's already drunk yeah he's all <laughs> Oh yeah, he's already drunk. Like so he's he's having a he's having a night. Yeah. Where he's like, I don't want to accept it's a it's it's actually a really cool version of what Jane is experiencing, right? Like, I don't want to accept reality, so let me just go get drunk all the time. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to accept this truth that he's been told, and so he goes and gets drunk, but he is compelled to go show up at the doorstep and be like, wait, no, I need to know. Jane is not. She's she's full in on I'm just going to avoid and deny and drink yep. and just the, like it's just such good character writing. Everything serving the plot, everything serving the character motivation. It's fucking great. Well, it was a scene involving Jane and Edwin that was hands down my favorite scene. <laughs> Yeah. Which I'm realizing now, it's just another one that happens to involve dancing as far as my favorite scenes and musical numbers here. Yeah. Um, but Tim, my God, when, yeah, when when she gets him to play 
the old song. She dresses up and it's like that one shot from like low down and she's dancing in front of those lights that are basically acting as those sort of like ground stage lights. Yeah. And she's performing her dance. It was just one of those like, this is Dude. pure cinema. I don't know how to put it other than that phrase. Like it was, it ju- it's just so truly good. Truly incredible cinema. <laughs> yeah. It was just the best of the best right there. And that's when the movie like, oh man, just knocked my socks off. This is why, I I mean, it's sort of schadenfreude, I guess. This is why I like watching the American Idol auditions. Because they are this, a lot of them. And there's some something uncomfortable and thrilling and sad about watching somebody who's kind of out of touch give it their all and still kind of be a mess. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know why I like it, <laughs> but maybe I'm an asshole. Uh, I am well, an asshole. But, but there's just something about it that's so like, it's the train wreck, right? Like, can't look away from the train wreck. I don't know, man. I think it's that we haven't, as a society, acknowledged that there can still be something just beautiful in watching someone put on a song and dance and perform their heart out. Like that, yeah. that is no, you're right. just because it's beyond this sort of like societally deemed. And you know, it's not just society because it does come from, Oh, that voice sounds good. That mm-hmm. person looks good or makes me feel a certain way, but it doesn't make like someone's, I don't know. And that's, that's just that paradox within there. But then yeah. human worth is all equal yet. That person made me feel better than this other person. So that's just where it gets into that awkward I think territory where you know can only it's 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 easier just put it as sadder of it, but the but I think it's like when someone puts on a performance and is singing genuinely, like that just is. There's nothing you know more beautiful in that sense if you just look at it that way. And like, can't you just I, get on board with that? It's why like, never mind. But you get the point. <laughs> I, I I do, and I think that you're you're making an important point to what the content of this movie has right like what it is that all is kind of its own um i don't know what what's the word its own layer i guess of what is being said in this movie right the industry chose blanche and for whatever reason right like like jane jane had a career to begin with like jane was a commodity she was a brand she's all these things that we attach labels to a human being and turn them into a product mhm the doll and yet yeah she's the doll and yet it didn't work right like the doll you know uh, went out of favor and the the other doll came into favor and that was blanche and so I, I think you're you're kind of hitting the nail on the head with this idea. It's under it's underneath all of that, right? Can we just watch this human being like shine her own light, w- regardless of what we deem as good or bad? It's just her own light. It's, it's also the shade of of whatever color of the spectrum that she is. Right. And it's it's just that it's also just the the pretense behind it. Oh, she she once was, you know, she's upset about once being loved and not anymore and being famous and no one knows her name anymore. Like, you know, yeah. it's that's something that's just so hard to separate from just rather than just observing the performance in of itself, you know. Yeah, there's this whole kind of 
subtext about the industry and how it just kind of chews up and spits out people like they are, you know, a sandwich, a, a you know, it's the Sam, the, it's they're the soup du jour or whatever, the, you know what I mean? And they just like move on to the next. And even with Blanche, right? Like, of her own doing, but like she was this the the you know the soup of the day for a time, and then she self destructed, and and now we're spending you know the movie with these two people who the industry would just call has beens, right? And then they exploit Blanche, right? <sighs> the industry needs a buck. And so they say, well, who do we have in the catalog that we can show a bunch of movies on TV and and get some viewership, right? Like even that has this weird, gross, insidious vibe to it because she ain't getting paid for that. Mm-hmm. Nor is she getting her fan letters, it turns out. Yet. Well, right, exactly. So you <laughs> have – it's just so cool that you've got from all these different angles these versions of exploitation and – just the grossness that revolves around how we view what's popular and talent and like how quick we are to move on from a thing but the, like know, the, the instant positive gratification or something the positive inverse of all that is like when we see someone get their lifetime achievement award and like sure. get their standing ovation or whatever at the oscars it's 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 interesting yeah. you know and that's that actually, and that's the recognition part that Blanche, or sorry, that Jane is seeking and gets in the end, just well, through the worst methods. It's right, it, and it's so sad. You know, it is sad when we see her like just. It's like the the peaked too early kind of thing, you know, and mm-hmm. sort of again this this view of like. She remembers as a kid just the way she'd make other kids and audiences light up. And she just wishes, like, you see, and you feel that, like, when she says to the bank teller, whoever, like, oh, I was baby Jane. And they're just like, oh, who the hell was that? But, you know, she it's like <laughs> as if she just wants to just, like, pull out that that positive feeling that she was giving those other people and just be like, here, don't you see it? Remember this? And just make them light up. But it's like, it's not that easy. And it gets, gets at the whole... Life is temporary and fleeting, baby, kind of thing. And it's, yeah, it's and, also, and you better learn to adapt and it, like yeah. and change with with the times or whatever. Oh yeah, it 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 just reminds me of kind of whatever every generation goes through, and I we're probably going through it, you know, with our favorite actors and stuff now, where it's like some of the younger generation. Oh, this show, this actor, they were the best. This was the best. Like we remember our parents and grandparents doing, and then the generation yeah. below is just kind of like what? What? Ooh. We're just kind of <laughs> yeah. Or or you just you know seeing our favorite actors now and like you know thinking of them as they're you know in their quote unquote prime movie star selves dude i remember when jim carrey was ace ventura dumb and dumber you know whatever right. it is <laughs> i mean think about this like just from from my end the reason i got into film was because of two actors that i admired that were like my quote-unquote sort of heroes that i was like i want to be like them i want to make movies like that mel gibson and tom cruise <laughs> Can you, you imagine, just, like, in, in 20 years, it's my kid being like, who were your favorite actors growing up? And I say them too. They'd be like, ooh, dad, what was going on with you? When you were like, telling I, me, I have to explain to them that they were not, you know, who we know them as now. Like, we, yeah. they were very different or appeared to be very different people when they were young. 
Yep. They're who we wanted to see, of course. Uh, but that's not invalid, you know? Right. As far as being inspired by what you see, isn't that what movie stars are in a way? You know? <laughs> it's crazy. So, yeah, I just, I'd love that this movie gets you, you know, the juices of all of that stuff flowing and just makes you kind of want to take a bath in it. I, um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I mentioned, you know, the doll. That's just another great motif throughout this of just oh, like sort of exactly like everything we've been saying. Like the doll is the sort of, at one point, it's kind of oh, let me you know if a kid buys that doll for three twenty five after seeing uh, Baby Jane, you know, then they get they bring that piece of joy home or whatever. But then as the decades go on, it becomes this like just this forgotten thing. And for Jane, it's just like this mannequin of this was my smaller, younger self that then she looks in the mirrors and sees that she's far from being anymore and just that breaks scene- down. That lighting change is one of the most amazing moments. Mm-hmm. She's kind of um she's kind of contrasty lit. She's like she's lit, but she's she, you know, there's a lot of contrast on her face when she's initially I think I can't remember, is she singing in that moment? Uh either way, but then she steps underneath a top down light. And it it really, like, all the shadows go away. It's, like, just as bright as you could get on her face. And she sees that version of her face in the mirror and has a complete meltdown. And that, the way that that is shot, there's a lot of obvious, it's black and white. There's some incredible uh, filmmaking techniques and just in shadow and, and such. Oh yeah, man, the, the last that scene one blew like blew me away. <laughs> the the last scene in the bedroom, just lighting wise, really oh. struck a chord with me. Where it's just like just bathed in these gorgeous deep shadows for their little and they, final. Yeah, confrontation. they have the like they use the practical light of the on the on the bed stand, and the the angle that they shoot her face at is sort of three quarters. And what it ends up doing is like. A lot of one half of her face is just completely in darkness, but because they're at an angle that that practical light, the lamp on the uh, bedside table, is catching the the cornea of her eye that's in darkness, and it's literally like glowing in this you know shadow. Just the rim of her her eye and her pupil are sort of brightly lit up. It's so disturbing looking (laughs) right it looks like this weird negative space with an eyeball just sort of floating it's so freaky and she's being very freaky it's fucking great um another one of my favorite pieces of just kind of the filmmaking combined with the context and you know of the story was the overhead shot of um on her wheel on out of Blanche on her wheelchair yeah. where just the whole time in the movie it was is pretty cathartic in a way where this whole time we're feeling like the sort of trappedness of being upstairs and you know not being able to get down the stairs there's the moments where she like looks kind of scopes it out and we know she wants to make it down but it's just 
pretty impossible or difficult. So then to also to have just, we were already getting this sense of trappedness and just not being able to escape. And then to, that shot just encapsulated it perfectly. From above, she's just in this little area of house in her room and just the wheelchair spinning around, can't yeah. go anywhere. It's just, it just so perfect. Using the fact that she's in a wheelchair, you know, you couldn't really do that if she was mobile. Um, yeah. It's, it is, I mean, that's a very famous moment too like i think people even if you haven't seen this movie you've seen either that referenced or like parodied yeah because i i mean I, I like that shot came out i was like oh right this thing i've seen this a bunch of times you know well, the, it just has that feel the one i mean shout out just to, you know acknowledge it the the moment that was the famous moment that i somehow knew through reference or osmosis and like if you type the movie on youtube it comes up as the first clip it's not oh, that yeah. it's being wheelchair but it's the the quote and or it's looked at this is the the scene even though there's tons of other lines and it in the, when you're watching it in the context of movie it doesn't really seem oh wait let me guess i bet i know is it uh but you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> so good. It's just to, you know, maybe say up front now, you know, how great they both are in this, but you know how it really is the tour de force for Betty Davis and that kind of yeah. acting. Very much, you know, like I've mentioned, our other, other uh, favorite, like, uh, you know, a hundred bringing it to one hundred and ten percent actors that we've mentioned. She's totally one of those. It is so much fun to, and that mo- that moment, that line encapsulates that. Like, I guess I get why that's so <laughs> yeah. famous, and it is so satisfying. <laughs> I, I, I will say, and like, I know there's there's all sorts of stuff out there about the relationship that that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford had. And their experience making this. I think they made another film together as well. Like, <clears throat> and there's all sorts of like, whatever people conjecture about whether it, they liked each other or not, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff exists. But one thing is for certain, Blanche, well, they are so perfect for each other. And like, the performances. I know Betty Davis got a lot – well, she was nominated and, and Joan Crawford was not for this movie. Um, and take that for what it's worth. You cannot – Betty Davis's performance is so fucking incredible and so like crazy and nuanced and sad. It's got a million different things components going on and i think that's really like what the biggest takeaway for me in in terms of praising her performance is how just how diverse the 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 aspects of her performance are and yet they all are cohesive in this one character and i it's amazing to me Mm -hmm. now having said that I think that Joan Crawford's performance is so compelling because we feel so much sympathy for her. Like her panic and her she you know she doesn't have a lot of lines or anything. She she spends a lot of the time just kind of being scared. But man does she she feels super grounded. I feel so bad for her. 
You know, oh my God. and even when <laughs> yeah. she tells, finally is able to tell Jane the truth, I feel bad for for fucking Blanche in that moment, which is so messed up. But it just goes to show, like, how well she did to gain our sympathy in her performance. I mean, Joan Crawford did. So that Blanche doesn't, even though she is kind of the actual monster of the movie— you still just feel for her. And I think that's really amazing and, yeah. and you know, worth I think, noting, I guess. I think it highlights that in this movie, you know, I, I heard like the word camp thrown along, you know, around describing it or um, or that um, or that Betty Davis's performance is this crazy over the top thing. But I think the way um, the way Joan Crawford did it is in it. It's like you could say, oh, it's a more understated performance, da, da. and it is, but it's it's that it's a more understated character, and right. it, like we don't feel any less weight from her, you know, like like rather like when she's dying at the end, she doesn't have to be like, oh, I can't, I, I, you haven't been feeding me, I'm starving. We just like feel her withering away, you know, it, for just yeah. from her performance, and it's incredible, and so much like. I think she is just portraying a character or a person who is just, you know, that is how they are. You say this exact same thing about baby Jane. She's, that's who she is. That's a kind of, there are people like that. It's not that it is some like over the top performance. It's perfectly cast, you know, perfectly done, but it's not, neither are any kind of, you know, extreme, you know, outside of the bounds kinds of, you know, choices of filmmaking. No, I, I really – I think I maybe should change my my vote. I hadn't drank any coffee when I said that I was a rent. <laughs> <laughs> it's given you enough to chew on now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I should be a buy. Maybe you're, I will. I'm, I'm going to officially make myself a buy. Cool. You're too distracted by where to put your mug down. Is everything was wrong. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I slept horribly last night. Anyway, yeah. No, it's so good. It, it from so many different angles. We didn't even really touch touch much about Elvira. Um, I know who's like she's she's so important for this movie as almost being kind of a marker of sanity for the audience of yeah. just like she's. She's just she's she's not just like no BS, but she's she holds that and defends that and is kind of like the our our trooper, our soldier for all yeah. that. Like the way she stands up to <laughs> baby Jane at the end, and then it just made it all that much more horrible and horrifying than when she gets killed in the yep. moment by the hammer by her. But she's just great and I think super important for the film, what she represents. I I do too. I I absolutely love that sequence because her coming back and being like, she placates Jane in just the right way, but lies to her face, right? She, she kind of plays Jane's game back on her and, and pretends to be naive and pretends that she left the keys at home. Oh, no, I don't have the keys. Oh, let me go stand at this bus stop and wait for you to drive by and then piece the fuck back to the house. Like, right. it's so good. It's co- It's because it's on that level that ba- that Jane is doing it. So it's like, you right. know, if she can't call her out on doing anything wrong when she's just meeting her at her own game. Yep. Yeah, I, I love it. And it is heartbreaking to see her die 
and then just get tossed on the side of the road and left, you know, I love the newspaper headline. It doesn't mention her name. She's just referred to as the Hudson's maid. And she's left found dead on the side of the road in Ventura. Mm, right. I mean, it is. And, and I also like that the only other person of color in this movie is the one who comments on that headline. He like mm-hmm. sees the newspaper and he's kind of like, damn, that's a horrible way to go. <laughs> yeah. You know, and right. like not not that that this film has anything to do with representation or <laughs> any commentary on it whatsoever, but it is it's just I don't know, there's something there's something so endearing about Elvira's character and and like I guess it's what you're saying. She's us. You know, she's she's our our touchstone into this world like like she knows what the hell's going on right she feels like our strength of just being willing to stand up to this crazy woman yeah yeah (laughs) call her out for her bs for what it is yeah and i think that is that's you know again it's really well constructed to take that character and have them be the the one death Mm -hmm. in the movie the one murder Mm -hmm. it's tragic yeah i I think that's i think that's kind of part of my big broad thing is that like to me this movie is does not feel like a horror film so much as a tragedy it's psychological you know thrilling and all of that and so like sure but the tragic aspect of it is what i'm always left with right all around it's just so sad well the i wanted to mention to a suspense moment that probably got to me more than any other like i can't think of another film where i just made me feel <laughs> this like into it intense was just when she's when um <laughs> when uh um blanche sorry is trying to get the letter to the neighbor oh, and <laughs> i love it and it's like she writes in it it's so amazing she writes it like do not let my sister jane see the contents of this note <laughs> so it's just like we're so scared of jane at this point just like she's so unhinged you know and so like just that moment where, where who's who's the letter gonna end up with you know when it's oh. laying on the ground and then when jane does take it it's just like i was just freaking out i was like oh my god she found she's gonna read it she's gonna go even more crazy it just felt like the repercussions of that were so huge and terrifying i was just so into it i i feel like this this scene or sequence i guess is sort of to me this is the master class in building suspense hitchcock obviously is really good at this as well but you know establishing a goal establishing a timeline and then constricting the timeline and making it all like come to a head at one moment like Mm -hmm. and 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 like the way that those this in this sequence in particular but in general the 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 way the way that those types of sequences are made most compelling is to shrink the the ticking time bomb like the time frame that thing a thing needs to happen in while expanding the actual time that it takes for the scene to unfold and this does it so so well right she's in a hurry 
But she types the thing out, but then she's like, shit, I don't have time. I got to handwrite some more stuff. But then it's like, you're handwriting a whole message. Like, come on, just get to it, right? <laughs> so we're we're already, like, pressed for time. And that time, that extra time costs her yeah. because Jane comes home right as she's throwing the letter out the window, right? And then we have this drawn-out sort of – it's probably only a minute long or something like that, but that minute just – goes on and on because the paper just sits there in between them they have a conversation we really don't know if jane's gonna pick it up blanche is watching from the window but has to like scoot back and not be seen like all of those little details expand the time that something very brief is happening within and it just it just makes our heart rate go up it did. That's all I was getting at. I was so into I, it. It's so, so, so well constructed and executed. I, I love that stuff. Just I as, really wish, you know, that kind of uh, detailed, you know, execution of scenes like that. I don't feel like we see that that much anymore. Though I haven't seen his latest opus. I think Christopher Nolan does that really well. Like that's all Dunkirk was, was just these. That's true. Yeah. I, I love Dunkirk for that. Um, yeah. I uh, <laughs> I loved him. I thought it was so smart if you kind of look at it as, um, I mean, I, I, I put it as a horror movie in a horror sense of like feeling, you know, almost like The Shining. We just had this feeling mm-hmm. the whole time that it was going to build to some sort of outburst on Jane's part that was going to be violence. And so... So I'm thinking even before, you know, I I hit play on the movie, right? That that's where it was going to go. So as far as, you know, having the the, the perceived reality be that Jane did hit Blanche with the car, like that I think was so smart to do up front because then it sort of gets us to buy into that possibility of how unhinged she might get, you know, without having to necessarily hold our hand all the way over again. You know, it mm-hmm. holds our hands, and how do we then repeat that kind of outburst? Um, but then I thought was so smart, just on top of that, having, you know, her perceived uh, kind of violent outburst at the beginning. Then, of course, you know, you have the build with the animals and whatnot. Um, but I kept thinking, like, well, where's this going to... I kept thinking it was going to go to, you know, she kills Blanche somehow. It's going to be some kind of horrible thing like that. And she does. She leaves her to to you know she torches her and gives her a slow death basically but as far as that outburst of violence i knew was going to happen it was so smart to use that on um elvira instead because you still have that moment of like you you know you're waiting for of this violent outburst towards another human but then you know it, it got that out of the way in a sense where i was like well where is this ending gonna go all of a sudden and just where it did go i just thought it was incredible like the whole ending was so good like first of all it's like this whole sort of girthy set piece of at the beach first of all it's not Mm -hmm. just like a little little you know snapshot of a scene but then it's just everything that's going on in it from like the sort of you're at a 
beach after being in this house this whole movie. It's the beach that they played at when they were kids. It's like surrounded by people, like even though they're in the news and like the cops are slowly catching on to it. And then of course she gets her crowd around her and it's just like, she's trying to play ball with the other kids there as if she's (laughs) a little kid. It's so so incredible, right? And all leading up to Blanche telling her the truth. Yeah. You know what? I I don't know if you noticed this, and I'm not sure. I'm going to just assume that this was intentional. The makeup that, you know, they added a bunch of aging makeup to both of them for this film, right? Like, they don't look like they do in this, in actuality. Well, they're dead now, so who knows what they look like. But the aging makeup that they put on them in that moment when they're on the beach together in sunlight is really thick and really they look both of them look like shit right they you you can tell the the weight of the movie has really hit them at this point yeah and then we have our moment of of revelation right blanche tells jane the truth they blanche or sorry then jane gets up and goes and says i'm gonna go get some ice cream in the ice cream scene when she's asking for it she has almost none of that prosthetic aging makeup on. She's clean-faced. It looks just like that's just Betty Davis with, like, some eyeliner on. And my take on it, if if it's true that they really just stripped her of that makeup purposefully, my take is that, like, she's she's become kind of her childlike self again. I mean, that's what the whole scene is. I didn't even mention it in that term. Yeah. So I, you know, because that's what the scene is, I think they intentionally pulled that makeup off of her to make her look more revived and youthful. Well, it's that her character wouldn't care about putting on makeup like that, maybe, you know, at that point. She's her kid self. Sort of the prosthetic aging stuff that they had put around her eyes. That's gone Mm. when when she's picking up the ice cream. I didn't know if that was prosthetics or not. Are you sure about that? It's just like it's not prosthetics, I I think, but it's it's they've caked on a bunch of extra like fake wrinkles on her eyes. Mm. On both of them. They had it this sort of um it's like latex stuff that they had like put on around their eyes. Okay. Um and I'm yeah, I I think that the filmmaker said, "Hey, we need to see her in this moment actually looking more youthful because she's really kind of She's gotten the information and she's doubled down on her denial. Mm-hmm. Well, she's it's really reverted into now she's just the kid. She already has, though, just with them going to the beach because that totally. reveal doesn't happen till partway through. But it's that's like, my point is that I think that that's that was the filmmaker's ver- like way to further that spiral into, you know, childlikeness. Mm hmm. By like having visually that stripped away from her even, you know, it's sort of unnatural, right? Like you wouldn't, but it's sort of like the weight is lifted, right? The the age is lifted from her in, in this weird sort of metaphorical and literal way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd have to look it up and see if there's any, anybody makes this comment as well. Uh, or if if it was just a matter of practicality on the set. You know what I mean? Like, it could have been that, too. But it works regardless. It it worked because it made me go, oh, man, that's cool. It's um, it's funny because, like, my read on it before 
kind of I'm I thought it was supposed to be like kind of a, intentionally unclear if um if Blanche was lying to Jane about the lie. Like <laughs> I, oh, I now of course I know that you know oh no it's that you know I I guess the film does treat it as and I'm guessing the book do treats as no indeed the reality is that Blanche, you know, faked this accident and gave, you know, blamed Jane, blamed it on Jane. But I was so in the moment, you know, always thinking in terms, well, how are you going to try to, that she was, that that was a last ditch attempt to try to kind of reach her was, or to try to get her to snap out of her childlike self or what, you know, her completely far gone (laughs) self that she's at at that point was like, what if I convinced her that she wasn't actually that bad? you know, that she didn't do this horrible thing and, you know, almost used her own sort of reality lying distortion right back at her. Right. Um, so I, I mean, that's I w- a cool take. It's, it's certainly, you could make that argument. That was my first assumption when I was watching it because I was so bought into the reality of, you know, <laughs> Blanche, um, being, you know, the victim of the accident. Right. Right. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, so it, it is weird. It, that worked for me in my very subjective way, but apparently isn't right. the, the movie. Um, yeah, ending so good. And then I didn't even realize she's ordering ice cream at the end and is so excited about it, just like she wanted so much at the beginning. Like, oh my God, yep. full circle, perfect. Yeah. Uh, one thing about the, how they filmed Elvira's death scene or murder scene just the brilliance of where the camera is placed when they're in the hallway and Elvira has the hammer. Mm-hmm. She puts the hammer down on a little kind of like, I don't know what you would call it, but it's a little side table that's next to the door. And the camera is right there. So she basically puts the hammer into the lower left corner of the frame. And because it's a wide lens, the hammer looks humongous, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's distortedly big. And the two of them are kind of upper right, you know, of frame. And you watch Blanche like kind or sorry, Jesus, Jane. You watch Jane kind of stalk back around Elvira and the hammer's looming right there. Mm-hmm. And Elvira gets in the door and like goes forward. It's just so, so good. Well, even just as cool how it... um how we we felt the power in Elvira standing there at the top of the stairs by how it's shot. We're like, we're so, like, like we get in that moment how Jane actually feels like she did almost meet her foil a bit of someone who's yeah. not willing to put up with her BS, just in the way that was shot with her just sort of standing strong at the top of the stairs looking down at Jane. It was very good. Yeah, and just some other sort of film technique things. The, the, um, the zoom-ins on objects... I really love like the phone. There's a couple of them on the phone. There's a couple that are zoom in on on Blanche's face. That top down shot of her in the wheelchair is so good. I love that. But right prior to that moment, we go from the shot where the camera is centrally on the the desk that she's having the the dinner on to when she shoves it off the desk, the camera pedestals down to underneath that desk and we see her start to roll around. And it's just, there's just little nuanced things like that that are so beautiful and well-constructed. 
um, the both times, anytime we're at the bottom of the stairs or the top of the stairs, those shots are framed really, really well and lit really beautifully. Um, watching Blanche contemplate trying to get down the stairs the first time having her small in frame at the top of the stairs and having the stairs effectively get bigger as as uh so from the top of the frame where blanche is small the stairs are small underneath her but as we go down the stairs closer to us the stairs get bigger and bigger and bigger right because yeah. they're closer to us and where the camera is set all these little things really really specifically heighten every component to the state of mind we're supposed to be in the lighting stuff that we talked about um with with uh, jane stepping into light or out of light it's just it's just so beautiful to look at Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this most of this movie is one location, <laughs> you know, like we're in the house most of the time. Right, right. Uh, didn't mention the element of the buzzer was so good. Not oh. much to say about that, just aside from how good that was. Yeah. And then just a little even more on just the ending, but even more so just the whole third act or however you want to break it down. Like it's so natural to want to be rooting for Blanche and just thinking only in terms of how is she going to escape? What's her plan? And, you know, there's that bit where she's sort of untying herself a Mm. little bit. But there's something really good about just sort of making all that just seem like an impossibility at a certain point. You know, not it it didn't make too much of that thing or didn't necessarily go that route, which is sort of the more typical thing. So, again, just building this unexpected ending, it did that in different ways and all, all great. Yeah, it's really good. (laughs) <laughs> that's that scene when the scene when when uh uh what's his name the pianist edwin oh, edwin when he's left alone in the kitchen momentarily with the doll oh yeah oh man it's so weird and freaky i also loved his moment where it's like you know they're trying to keep cordial with each other when they first meet each other and they each have their game and she's like oh i always think it's great to break bread with strangers don't you think and so she gives him the like those like mini you know sandwiches just like a little and he's just he's just going to town on them it's like he's (laughs) stress eating these little bite-sized sandwiches right in front of her is so perfect yeah yeah. And the setting, I guess the last thing for me is just the setting, like the set decoration of the house, um, the house itself, which is still mm. around, you know, um, could put it on our list of things to go try. I know. Past. I was, of course, already thinking that. Yeah. Um, you know, the neighbors having that element mm-hmm. of like, they're not really nosy neighbors, but kind of, they're just sort of like, hey, can we insert no, ourselves it's that a they- little bit? It's they aren't nosy at all. It's just that they're any kind of normal friendliness or cordialness or neighborly neighborliness is only seen by a sort of an invasion by Jane or sort of like something, yeah. you know, that's 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 there that she has just one more little thing that she has to work or lie around. Right. Yet, yeah, which it's so good. She's getting confronted with just sort of a just everyday small talk truths of just people being normal. And even that is like a foil to her. Yeah. It makes me think the other day I was driving around and I was saying to Brit that 
we drove past the the house that is some people think that the doctor i forget the, the guy's name um and i forget the name of the house but the doctor who is one of the suspects in the black dahlia case um lived in a house right down the street from me it's the frank lloyd wright jr house it was in it's been in different movies and such i think it's in i don't know it's been in a bunch of stuff anyway you know we drove by and i was like just think about the fact that it's it's plausible that there were a bunch of women murdered in that house right there that we drive by all the time and we both we started talking sort of about that idea of like Actually, that's kind of true for any of the houses we drive by all the time, right? Like, we don't know the crazy, dark stuff that has occurred in any given house around anywhere, right? And, you know, I think that idea of it could be happening in your neighbor's house is part of the horror of it. Mm -hmm. And I I like that because those neighbors, they're so unwitting about what's going on over there. Yeah. It's like uh yeah, the burbs, but from the burbs's point of view or from the right. the Clopex point of view. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even though we get that great scene at the end of the burbs, where are the crazy ones? Don't you get it? We're the ones <laughs> Tom Hanks. This God, moment. I love the burbs. Me too. Hey, maybe a future episode. Um anyway, I mean, man, uh, this just like any of our great films. It could go yeah, on, could but go I on. feel like I uh, said everything I really want to say. Agreed. All right. Well, if there was anything, let's move on to our next section. Lo and behold, what did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? <laughs> I only really have one thing. I wish <laughs> I just wish the music wasn't so melodramatic. <laughs> it's funny, I only that was my only like maybe thing I had too. And it wasn't so much the music itself being melodramatic, it was just how much there was at all yeah. is what kind of made it that. But then at a certain time I just I don't know. I got used to it. I, I see the yeah. year that it is. Um but there was like, God, what scene was it in particular? I think it might have been a scene with Edwin that was sort of tense. But where I'm just like, oh, this would be better if the music wasn't here. But this yeah. could be just a modern sensibilities thing so much, you know. And then, but then I wrapped around again and being like, well, now that I love this movie, I'm just gonna love everything about it, and that yeah, includes yeah. kind of its its. Uh, Whatever that factor is of just kind of going full that direction, you know, it just becomes comes its character. You know? It just makes me. It's one of those things where, like, most of the time, it, it it's not really bothering me so much. But there are these moments when I I'm like, whoa, the music really kind of just hits you in the face, and it <laughs> is this you know it's a very stylized older style thing which i get right like it it almost works in and of itself because it's like the style of the movies that they have been in previously right right exactly so, so like <laughs> in a way i get i totally get it but i just couldn't help but think 
imagine how much more upsetting and creepy this movie would be with a really haunting score underneath it. I mean, for me, it was just less of it in a way. But yeah. I, I, that could just be first-time viewings, not knowing exactly what I'm mm-hmm. getting into. And then on the subsequent viewings, it's all all good and gravy. That's Outside of that, I mean, honestly, like, what is there to, like, take issue with? I just... <laughs> right. <laughs> well, actually, I can tie a little bit that into things of note, if you're ready for that now. Sure. All right. Great. Here we go. Things of note. Things of note! <laughs> this should be interesting. Like, yeah, that was really interesting, actually, how you point out that music, that the music itself is kind of more emblematic of the movies that they were in as characters in the movies. But uh, And I also look at it as there's something I really, there's something I really like about this little era of filmmaking from, like, the films that we've watched. And it's probably not just in horror, too. That And it's an area of history that's always fascinated me, too, that's transitioning from what we think of as the stereotypical 1950s to what we think of as the stereotypical 1960s, right? Where you have these 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 feet in two pools, two ponds kind of thing, and how <laughs> filmically is that being balanced and explored? You know, whether it be Psycho is doing it just with being, you know, sort of typical 1950s feel set up, black and white, but then super 1960s transgressive, you know, mid-act kill the protagonist. Like, mm-hmm. or some of our other, our other favorite ones, um, or, you know, noteworthy ones too from this era were uh, Carnival of Souls, uh, you know, which could be looked at just from the independent filmmaking spirit from a few years later, just 1964 was 2000 Maniacs, and that whole time was when Herschel Gordon mm. Lewis was doing his whole thing. We forget that just because it's so gory that it was actually that long ago. You know, right. his films were early 60s. Uh, Eyes Without a Face was 1960, another super, super transgressive, mm-hmm. taking those 60s values with it. Um so even, you know, when we just saw that in the trailer, too, thought that was super interesting of, like, trying to hold the audience's hands into this, I don't know, just, just exploring new territory. It's so neat. Similar, you know, the end scene of Psycho, the exposition scene, all that mm-hmm. stuff. It's, it's really cool. It is cool. It's a weird era. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, Me too. Because I love both eras so much, you know, so I'm especially fascinated by the sort of blending and contrasting and headbutting of the two. Yeah, I mean, The Innocence was right around then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Black Sabbath was right around then. Right, where you get these sort of the, a certain artistry in the filmmaking bumping up against these more like traditional uh, approaches to it was right then yeah it's pretty it's wild we it's kind of you know we've seen a lot from the really from the 60 to 65 range yeah Glidon was 65 oh my god again like all ones i really loved and are just yeah. something about them too that only now i'm kind of recognizing um this yeah, movie cool and this movie's you know just doing it so much and it's it's meta ways of the old actors from the previous time yada, right, yada. right. Um, oh my god, we forgot to mention um but I guess it can go here in terms of the old actors stuff. 
using old footage from movies when the two actresses were young in the op- in the early stuff was so brilliant. Right. It's like talk about it's like how they had to play these roles, how they were born for this this these parts, you know. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it was super cool. Not just in a in a what works way, but just the that that was possible way and that's yeah. how it played out way. Yeah. Um you're curious about the makeup. Uh, apparently Betty Davis created her own makeup for the role of Baby oh, wow. Jane, which was uh very just perfect and on par with the kind of person she is and <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. going going for it going full force for it um i had heard this term before but apparently there's this it's a uh, you know according to wikipedia this spawned the quote psycho bitty subgenre i read that I, i'm like <laughs> I, what does that even mean it means it Combines elements of horror, thriller, and women's film genres, which conventionally feature a formerly glamorous older woman who has become mentally unbalanced and terrorizes those around her. So Sunset Boulevard, would that would that, yeah, that fit was into ni- that? Nineteen fifty. That totally fits in that. But that was nineteen fifty, and apparently, like this is the one that actually started a trend of these films gotcha. and sort of the, gotcha. the next ten years. Um, oh. I, I've been kind of off and on watching the first season of Twilight Zone. There's a great, mm. great episode so that good. falls under that, if you know the one I'm talking about, similar aging starlet who's like watching her old film reels over and over and it's really, uh-huh. really good episode. Um, yeah, Tim, another one that we should do a little locations visit tour of, see the house. I'd love to do totally. that. And But what was so funny was when I was looking it up that a super recent article came up on it from- oh, really? Yeah, just from 13 days ago by when we're recording this, that for the first time in, God, how many years is it? It's gone up for sale. Oh, yeah, for the first time in 48 years, the property is up for sale. So if any any friends and fans listening to this have uh, $3.795 million, they want to, you know, buy this house for us. (laughs) Yeah, that that can be our new uh, studio. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to record <laughs> at the house from whatever happened to be Baby J, whatever. Be perfect. Yep. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what else do you got here? Um, I mean, just it it it's interesting to me how this sort of critically was very mixed at the time, uh, but really grew into this, you know fan favorite cult favorite if you will um lots of i mean for a a quote-unquote horror film you know betty davis getting an oscar nomination is pretty sweet they won a bunch of awards elsewhere um but uh let's see the the only one that they won as an academy award was for costume design yeah nominated for a bunch of stuff though yeah i mean i just think it's so cool like uh the era you know the house itself um which still looks on that it's you know the interior was a set but the outside like it looks just like it still just like down to the numbers of the address itself just all the little window fixtures it's kind of incredible um 
I've always found it kind of interesting and, and fascinating the 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 lore around these two actresses and and their relationship. I think so. I think what's interesting is not the truth about it; is that how the tabloids and like people just love to like dive into the possibility of what their relationship was like. Right. It's become something outside of themselves now. It's just like yeah. the idea of it has taken on a, a grandeur or a legend that's just aside the point of what may have actually happened. Because like our sense, or at least my sense of these two actresses is really based off of only what other people say about them, right? It's like mm-hmm. we weren't alive when they were doing their thing. So, you know, when you think of Joan Crawford or the first thing that generally comes to mind is the sort of mommy dearest portrayal of her, which is that she was this larger than life maniac, you know, like, and, and, and like tortured her daughter, in a in a lot of ways, you know, which spawned a book, which spawned a movie with Jessica Lang, like, you know, and Betty Davis is just sort of, to me, is just notorious as a fi- figure in Hollywood history. Um, but I don't really know anything about their actual lives. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's this weird thing. That's why I say it's almost like what other people's sort of perception of them is is what we get. It's not really – I don't know how much of their real-life stuff is, A, known – I mean, in particular, we don't even know how old Joan Crawford is because she's got a question mark next to her uh, date of birth. <laughs> like little things like that that then just make me go, oh, right. They both come from that era of filmmaking, you know, the the golden age of film, right? Like old Hollywood, the old MGM, like craziness and all that stuff, it's so fascinating to me. It makes me think of that podcast again. Uh, the um, You Must Remember you This. You Must Remember This, yeah. And, like, the, there's a whole season on – well, there's a season on, like, the the blondes of, of old Hollywood, and then there's a MGM season, and then there's a Blacklist season. Like, it's pretty cool. Cool. That's it, though. That's all. Great. Great. Well, I think that's all I have, too. So – Tim, I think that means we got to recommend Ed something. We do. What do you got? Well, a friend recommended it to me. It was one of those a friend recommends to you a couple years ago, and you finally get around to watching it. And I've really been wanting to watch it, but I watched uh, Personal Shopper with hmm. Kristen Stewart from 2016. I, I almost want to like, recommend it to you directly too, Tim. It is... So cool. It's there's a lot of neat stuff with well, you know what? I was so blind going into it. I don't oh, want to okay. say what what I why I want to recommend it necessarily, but even alone what sold me, it's got something to do with Kristen Stewart playing a personal shopper to like a rich woman or model in in kind of like largely Paris set, all that good stuff. Okay. So but then there's a whole whole lot more to it that I think is just better left to when you see it. Oh, cool. So, now I'm intrigued. <laughs> yes. I was really into it, personal shopper. Wow. Cool. Uh, I just watched a movie, a Netflix movie, that was surprisingly good. 
art direction in it is incredible. Uh, it's called His House. Uh, it's from 2020. And it is, man, what should I tell you about it? It's it's about a refugee couple from Sudan moving to England. Well, or whatever, fleeing to England, whatever. They get they get a, on a boat and they end up in, in England somewhere. And the house that they are given to, which is just like the projects, it's like super crap rundown, not, not a nice place, but the one that they're given, um, it has some insidious stuff to it, malevolence. I've heard about it. His it's house. very good, and the performances are really great. Uh, I recognize the the lead woman from Lovecraft Country. Um, her name is Wunmi Mosako Mosaku, excuse me. And man, they're good. The, there's some dreamy sort of art deck stuff, like crazy film stuff. That is, it's so cool. So definitely get into it. Well worth it. <laughs> great, great. Well, Tim, I want to see what we're going to get into next week. So you want to pull a movie for us? I can do that for us. That's the sound of the hat. Here we go. This one right here. <laughs> it is, oh, The Sentinel from 1977. Awesome. Anything about this? You haven't seen it? I'm trying to think of this as one that I've seen. The Sentinel. (laughs) Huh. No, I always can I always like when I hear this title uh, Burgess Meredith. (laughs) When I hear this title, I always think it's that uh, that George C. Scott like haunted house movie. What is that one called? Oh, that's the changeling. Okay, do we have that on our hat? That's why I think maybe. I think we do, yeah. I'm pretty sure we do. Cool. Well, The Sentinel, I do not think I've seen. <laughs> I definitely have not. It looks very 70s. Yeah. <laughs> which is cool. Oh, man, it's got a bunch of people in it. Great. Eli Wallach, Christopher Walken, uh, Ava Gardner. Jesus. Ne- need say need no say more. Holy great, great, crap. Great. Cool. <laughs> well. Good times. Well, 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 well. Great. I'm glad we get to stay. You know, I like, I like un- unfurling, uncovering these older films. So until then, next week, you can find us wherever you found us, including at dismemberinghorde.com. We got an Instagram. We got a Twitter. Got all that jazz. Anything <laughs> to add with the, to that, Tim? Tim? All that jazz. <laughs> Just that. That's it. <laughs> great, great. Well, no. Uh, and thanks again, Ramsey, for the submission. Uh, definitely one of the better ones that people have submitted. It's great. Yeah. Classic. Uh, indeed. I see why it's classic. Lived up to its classic status. <laughs> so, in closing, thank you so, so, so much for being here. Remember, not getting your breakfast because you didn't eat your din din. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>